Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As Boris Johnson faces a series of challenges to his premiership, I'm joined by the leading Conservative backbencher and serial rebel, Steve Baker, to discuss the latest political drama, the culture wars, and whether Brexit is truly done. I started by asking Steve whether he himself is woke. Do you know, that's a very interesting question. What does woke mean? If it means, am I a neo-Marxist after Foucault and Derrida and all the rest of it? No, of course I'm not. Although they've got some very interesting things to say about power and language as signposts, things like that. But if woke means, am I willing to listen to other people and think about their point of view, hear them out and start thinking, where could I do better? Well, maybe. So to give you an example, um, I was in a pub last night with Lawrence Fox. That's a matter of public record because we tweeted out a picture. I was talking with a guy there about Black History Month, as I have done with people in my constituency, and I started to tell him a story that I didn't have to complete. Talking with a lady in Wickham, a Caribbean, a British Caribbean lady, and I'd asked her why is Black History Month so important because, you know, white British from Cornwall, I don't really needed it explaining. It was an awkward moment. She had a, a, a kind of British name, let's say Jane Smith for the sake of argument, and she said, Mr Baker, every time I write my name, Every time I've seen my name, every time I hear my name, every time I say my name, I'm, I'm reminded I'm descended from slaves. And the, the, the black guy I was talking to in the pub didn't need me to finish that story because halfway through he just knew. And that's the difference because if you're white British, you need to hear the story to understand that's how people feel. But the black guy there just knew. And you know what? I welled up with emotion. And I think he did too. Because we're connecting then and saying, actually... There's a problem in the UK that we're not a racist country, we're not institutionally racist, but there is a problem, that I think, that white British people haven't understood and heard where black British people are. And if that's being woke, well, you have to call me woke then. But I'm not willing to adopt the nonsense of critical race theory, and I've realised there's no point talking about white privilege. I tried to redefine the language, and it was a mistake. Well, I think it is worth talking about because it is a very important subject that has become very relevant in recent years mm-hmm. and you have talked about this issue before I have. what do you mean by white privilege because to many to say that a whole race of people have the same types of privilege is completely bonkers there yep. are white people of course in britain who are poor who have yep. gone through terrible situation and they would say i haven't got white privilege i'm just a human being with you know, different disadvantages and advantages, and that's what everyone else is. Yeah, so I totally sympathise with them. I'm from a, a working-class family. You know, my parents who are still around wouldn't mind me saying that. Dad was a building site carpenter, so, you know, I was not born and grew up, I didn't grow up with a lot of advantage. I mean, I was loved and the rest of it, but let's not get into that. But I totally sympathise. What I was trying to do when I talked about it was a bit like Ian Duncan Smith and the Centre for Social Justice, trying to say to the left, you may not have that term, actually. I'm going to reclaim it. But I've realised it just doesn't work for the reason you've given. So I'm not going to talk about it again. But what I was trying to do was say, actually, let's talk about this in plain English terms. 
and I was trying to make the point which I made to you a moment a, a moments ago. As a white British man, I had never met real prejudice until I became a Tory MP. Now people are prejudiced about my views. They invent my views and then they attack those straw man stuff. But what the, in a sense what I'm saying, the privilege of being a straight white British man is that I haven't suffered systematic discrimination. I mean, I've been bullied a few times, but I admit not because I was straight, white and male, but just because I met bullies and that's what they did. So that's what I was trying to do is recapture the language. But what I've realised is it's the wrong way to do it. It's just no point. That battle is lost. And we're just going to have to accept that if we're going to defeat critical race theory in particular, uh, we're going to have to just say, you know what, it's wrong. It's wrong to suggest that white people are privileged just by being white. And it's, it's a pity, in a sense, because of that phenomenon I just described. We have got a problem in this country that a lot of us who are white have not adequately understood where black people are coming from, or indeed Asian people. Is there not also a problem where we are becoming more divisive as a society? So when you say a sentence like, as a straight white British man, all of these things, in a way, are completely irrelevant. You are an individual, and everyone else should see each other as, as individuals, not as those intrinsic characteristics that you can't change. Yeah, so I totally agree. So one of my favourite slim books is a book called Principles for a Free Society by Nigel Ashford, published by a Swedish unpronounceable think tank. And in it, it's got a definition of equality, which I once tweeted out briefly in a, in a thread, that we must all be treated as morally equal, politically equal, legally equal, we must have equal opportunities, but it's actually it's impossible to give equal outcomes in a free society with equality before the law. And I tweeted that out, somebody accused me of being neo-Marxist, even though it's a straight-up classical liberal definition of equality. So we've got a massive problem, which is what I'm trying to get into when I do this. We've got a massive problem that people on the centre-right, conservatives and classical liberals, have in a sense, we've been too complacent. We have taken for granted, because we aren't racists, we aren't sexists, we aren't misogynists, we, you know, we, we're not homophobes, we're not Islamophobes. We take for granted that, therefore, because we treat other people equally, that they are equal. But the problem is, we've been complacent, and that then leaves you in a position like mine, in my constituency. 5% of my constituents are, are, are black British, and on the last census, 17% are British Asian, which mostly means Kashmiri. Well, if you wish to represent Wickham as a conservative, you better understand what it's like to be an ethnic minority. So that's the kind of journey I'm on. So I totally agree with you about equality of every individual. But somehow that isn't the world we live in today. And I'm trying to win this argument for the point of view which we both share. Is it not the case that those individuals within your constituency are, well, of course, they're the exact same people as white people, as white British people. Yeah. Therefore, you should be treating those people in the exact same way. Or, or should you be looking at them as a community and trying to target them as a community with their different needs? I want to get to the position that the colour of your skin matters no more or less than the colour of your eyes, as Peter Bottomley put it in the house. And I thought that really was great. But that isn't where we are. So I do want to treat people equally. I want people to not care that they're a different skin colour and I, don't, I want people of, you know, white people to be just embracing of others and also aware of them, but aware of their feelings. But a lot of what we need to do, I'm afraid, it's, it's very difficult for, if I may say so, people like you and me, we've got to be a bit more emotionally engaged with where people are. And I think that's a mistake we as Conservatives have made for a long time. And in a sense, what I'm calling people to do is just pause and think, how does it feel to be that other person? And so, we, so that when we craft our language, we're not inadvertently driving people away. Because in the end, I would like to win majorities for a classically liberal conservative government. 
And that means I have to make classical liberal conservatism attractive to everyone. Do you understand the concern from many of your voters that this stuff is going way too far? So, for example, there is an attempt to paint Britain as the most racist, terrible society for black, Asian, ethnic minority people. And that actually, we are one of the most liberal, tolerant societies in the world, in world history. And there is an attempt by many activists who are simply trying to degrade Britain in this way. Yeah. And some would argue, and some on the right would argue, that you are sort of aiding their argument in a way. Yeah, so I've had that conversation with some ferocity with some of my colleagues. I have. And I regret that it's got to this, but this is the heart of the issue, and I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you. I agree that it's gone too far. People have ended up, it's like the old Keynesian point about the scribblings of old, long-since-dead writers influencing the course of events. People who do not understand critical race theory and neo-Marxism and all the rest of it, that, you know, Derrida, they haven't read Derrida and Foucault and whatever, but they've ended up getting sucked into the outworking of that long-standing philosophy, and then it's poisoning our society. The challenge then for you and me and other people who think it's gone too far is how do you properly respond to it? Because if we just deny that there is a problem in an environment where actually if you're not white there is a problem, then we'll make things worse by driving people off. So I know I've chosen yet another really hard and divisive battle. I know I have, but it's one that I believe must be fought, otherwise conservatives just will lose power and stay out of power. But I particularly know, without without wishing to identify the person, but you know a girl, 15, totally drawn into BLM. She doesn't know what the, the... and parts of BLM, of course, are not radical ideologues, but she does not know that she's been drawn into a radical ideology. She just wants to say black lives matter. Well, I think that black lives matter, and I think that white lives matter, and all other lives matter. But you can't respond to that emotional place that people have reached by just replying all lives matter. Because I'm, although it might be said in good faith, it's not heard right. And, and Sorry, I'm talking at such length, but... The problem I think we've got here, which we've underestimated hugely in public life, is we are moving at the moment in the generation, probably between mine and yours, from the modern mindset, very rational, individualistic, very linear, to a postmodern mindset, which is very emotional, uh, tends to juxtapose conflicting ideas, it's, if not irrational, is just so influenced by emotion it's difficult to tell the difference. So. And, and of course, some of my constituents take what I would describe as an ancient worldview. I mean, if you're recently arrived from Kashmir, you're still looking after three generations of your family in the same house and wouldn't think of using social care. So Wickham has people with all three major mindsets in it. And I think one of the problems we've got is people my age, 50 and older, are moderns. And we're trying to deal with a problem which is actually a, a, a fruit of postmodernism. And then what's happening, because we have got different mindsets, we're totally missing in the post. So what I would say to people who think it's gone too far is to say, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm really worried about that Colston statue verdict because it seems to suggest the jury wasn't willing to apply the law as it stands and was willing to tolerate criminal damage provided it was rightly motivated by politics, but the right politics. That's terrible. That will lead to anarchy and chaos. We can't have that. But that only raises the stakes and the imperative to find a political language of conservatism, classical liberalism, which can engage with ethnic minorities and avoid them going down that disastrous path. I suppose many of your colleagues who would be sort of more to the right on you on this issue, they would argue, and many people do argue, that the ideology that 
BLM pushes, for example, is one which is destructive. It's one which is similar to Mao's cultural revolution in China in the yeah. 1960s. Mm -hmm. It's one which is a serious danger to our civilization and society in itself. So to respond in a very firm and proper way is quite correct because we are in a culture war and it is right to push back in a very uh, yeah. vocal way against these activists this and you've sort of disagreed in some ways for example taking the, the knee that was a big issue for and many it worked you know what, what I did worked and I'm, it's one of the proudest interventions I and most efficient interventions I've had I went to a football match Wickham Wanderers twice actually in the last 10 days and the footballers took the knee no, no one cared there was some clapping now, I completely sympathise with football fans who don't want any politics at football matches. I totally agree with that. I understand. But the last Wanderers match I was at, there was a, a homophobic chant started from the visitors stand. And, you know, you could easily, since it was about improper, you know, it was, not only was it homophobic, it was also incorrectly applied, I understand. But it was about a man who is black. And what if it had been a racist chant as well? And you can't tolerate, in this day and age... You could ne should never have tolerated people engaging in that kind of behaviour. It's hateful and wrong. I'm sure you and your viewers would want to end it as well. So, OK, so what are you going to do? So I appreciate that people don't want politics at their football matches. But what did I do? I did about 10 minutes on the Today programme in the morning pointing out that those footballers are not well-read neo-Marxists. They're footballers and they and their fans, friends and their family suffer racism. And all they're trying to say is... I'm opposed to racism, stop it. And that's a good thing. So then having politicians wade in and stridently denounce them as BLM supporting radical ideologues only worsens the position. Because people who are standing up for a righteous cause and to be against racism, who are not ideologues, don't understand when we bang on about the ideology and just fight them. So what I'm really saying is just stop fighting. Let's talk to each other and explain that actually we do agree. But if you wouldn't mind just looking at this grave danger over here, we need to together avoid that grave danger. I suppose the problem that you have and that in this debate is that the ideologues, the radicals, they say the exact same thing as those footballers. They would say, we're not radical, we're not ideologues, we simply want to end racism and these are our specific ways of doing it. And we would say, well actually this is going way too far, this is attacking our entire purpose of civilization and it's difficult I suppose to make that distinction and I agree with you that those footballers aren't well-read neo-Marxists but I suppose to your colleagues they might say well look this is simply what the ideologues and the radicals are saying anyway that this is their aim and we should completely disagree with that anyway let's move on can I just make a point Absolutely, there's a wonderful yeah, yeah. old essay by a guy called Leonard Reed who started the foundation for economic education how to advance liberty and it's available online if people search for it and the crucial point he made, you've got to understand liberty, you've got to recognise liberty, you've got to recognise the alternatives, but crucially you've got to make it attractive. And one of the problems we've got, if our opponents in this cause make their side look virtuous and attractive and then we just look angry and upset, we'll just drive people, who we'll drive the swing voters into our opponents' arms. And now, what I would also say is in this cause, just like Brexit and everything else, I've found, once again, the most strident and vociferous disagreements are not amongst opponents, they're amongst people who disagree tactically. And I'm just saying to people, let's have a serious conversation about what winning looks like. Let's do that. Right. In America, the Republicans have been very successful in fighting these culture wars electorally. So if you look in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin won this election on banning CRT 
from schools banning critical race theory, that is. Yeah. And he has just become governor. Day one, he signed uh, into law banning CRT from schools. The same thing in Florida with the governor there, Ron DeSantis. And the Republicans there, and, and I should also mention that parents on school boards have been very, very vocal in pushing back against this ideology teaching to their kids. I would say that these are very, very clever ways of fighting the culture wars. The government is is actively doing something about it. We're not just talking about it. We're not just being angry, as you say. Do you think that Conservative MPs should learn from your Republican friends and colleagues in what they're doing against the culture wars? Well, yeah. So if what you're saying is do with, do I think we should ban things which destroy, are capable of destroying our civilization? Well, yeah, of course, there's a case for it. But one critical of the race theory specifically in schools. I mean, that's just take that one yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So schools are supposed to not teach politics, but that's a good. This, in a sense, good for a laugh because I don't believe for a moment that children don't end up picking up politics from their teachers. But nevertheless, they are supposed to keep politics out of schools, and therefore, keeping out a radical political doctrine like CRT, I'd be in favour. I would, I would vote for a law that banned CRT from schools. And that's a good idea. But the point I'm making really is not about whether we ban CRT from schools. It's just that as we ban CRT from schools, we've got to make it attractive to ethnic minorities. And that's the problem is if it looks like because remember what you already you just said it about our opponents. They're super clever. They will make it look like we're being white supremacists. So we can't have that. So we've got to make sure that we have connected on the level of virtue and emotion so that rational people, the Mercy Marokis of this world, can say, you know what, I know that... Mercy, I'm sure, would say she she knows that I'm with her on these issues and that I would defend Mercy to the ends of the earth. But but what we we can't do when we're talking to people who don't know us is get ourselves into a position where when our opponents say we're white supremacists, the message lands. That is a disaster. So I'm talking really making the case for a change of tone and we might well agree that we need to ban CRT. But there is an argument that your opponents are going to be calling you a white supremacist, whatever you do, yeah. and that you shouldn't restrict that from enacting a, a series of policies which but fights these cultural Who's wars. saying that, though? I'm not saying that. Well, all I'm saying is that... Right, so my big worry in where we are, and perhaps we'll get on to public spending and all the rest of it. We all do, yeah. Yeah. We, we are heading, I still think, into a disaster on public spending and inflation and the currency system and so on. And it is because the dominant ideology of our time is one of state power and intervention. And the answer, I think it's the natural outworking of a hundred years of statism. But as classical liberals and conservatives, you want to prevent disaster and deliver prosperity and joy. Goodness, wouldn't that be nice? Some happiness. We need to just work out what's going on and what the left are doing. Because all of the time we allow them to seem to be on the virtuous moral high ground and us to be just angry about it, then we're failing. This is my argument, or this is what people say. The left currently control almost every major institution in Britain, from the BBC to the Civil Service to the National Trust to various other organisations, big business, big tech, all these things have sort of been infiltrated by woke ideologues to one degree or another. I'm not saying entirely, but, and I'm not even saying in a sort of conspiratorial way, but Uh in a sort of very passive way, that's what's happened over the last 20 years. And the government, many people say, aren't doing enough to tackle this stuff. They're not removing these people from these institutions. They're not fighting the woke ideology within these institutions. And for example, one quick and easy thing that they could do is they could withdraw funding from organisations like Stonewall. They could withdraw funding from other academics who are funding far left research into CRT and other things that we completely disagree with. So don't you think the government should be more active in this and not just being angry and not just having words, but actually doing action? Yeah, I'm always in favour of action. I mean, Margaret Thatcher said... Just give me some examples. Less talk, more action was what Margaret Thatcher said. But 
I'm sorry, that isn't really where I want to be. I don't want to be sitting here giving you a shopping list of people whose funding should be cut. That's not a wise bit of politics for me to engage in, and I'm not going to do it. This is public funding? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's for ministers to decide. If you're asking me the question, do I think ministers should stop getting into shouting and looking angry and instead just do things? Yes, of course. But it's for them to decide what they want to do. But even on... You have no views on these things, on, on whether no, you no, should publish... No, Stephen, I'm not saying I've got no views. I'm saying I'm not going to give you a shopping list of institutions right. and right. funding that should be cut. If you'd told me two days ago, give me a, I'm going to want a list, I might have sat down and gone at the TPA and <laughs> given you a list. But I'm not sitting here ma- making up a list on the food. No, no, absolutely. Anyway, let's move on to the major story this week. We have to talk about it. The Prime Minister admitted that he attended a work event in his eyes. To many people, it was a drinks organisation party. How did it make you feel when you heard that revelation? Appalled. You know, we're all waiting for Sue Gray's report to try and get some facts. So I don't envy her that position. She's a civil servant and met her a few times. You know, she's only human and I think my heart goes out to her to be in this position. But I was appalled. You know, a man and I, a constituent and I were speaking yesterday, his wedding plans were dramatically curtailed which he didn't mind in order to look after people through the disease. But he does mind, as he, as he put it, hypocrisy of the people who impose those rules on him simultaneously doing what it, it seems they wanted to. And the central issue here, there's several central issues, but one of them is the wrong rules were obviously applied on society. Because if people in Number 10, and indeed the Director General of the relevant unit, didn't think the rules needed to be obeyed, then they shouldn't have been imposed on everybody else. So, you know, Boris Johnson was not made Prime Minister for his ruthless and meticulous grasp of tedious detail. Some of that tedious detail, as, as the record shows, has always been in relation to compliance. And this is just the very, very worst exhibit of perhaps not noticing every detail of whether everything was strictly compliant. How it will work out, I don't know. It doesn't take a genius to know that a party at the, at the time was against the yeah, rules, does it? but again, Stephen, I hope your viewers will understand this. You know, I've been down this road once before, and we're all, we politicians are all only human too, and I'm just not going to go down the road of seeking to remove this Prime Minister. I'm not going to. I'm not going to comment on my confidence in him or otherwise. You know, I'm happy to tell you what my voters think, which is that they're furious. I said yesterday, I gave a number yesterday, and the mistake there was that the, my, the balance of opinion has now changed in my inbox. But nevertheless, my constituents are still overwhelmingly against him as a result. But I am going to refuse to go down this path again. It's too high cost for me to go down the path of trying to remove him. I won't do it. But I think people have inferred what I think, not least because at the beginning of December when this stuff broke, I did go out and do a media round relaunching Conservative Way Forward. And I did say what I thought, which that the rules must apply to the rule makers. I'm going to ask two questions on this, and I know you say you won't comment on your confidence. Well, I'll have to tell you no comment. Well, well, I'm going to ask the question anyway. If Boris Johnson is found to have lied to Parliament over these, as Dominic Cummings claims, would you then lose your confidence within the Prime Minister? So I am not going to comment on my confidence in the Prime Minister, but what I would say is that it is part of the ministerial code that ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament resign. And that is, that is the way it is. But equally, it's a speculative question, but it's just a matter of fact that that's what's in the ministerial code. Now, you are a veteran MP of the Theresa May government. You were hugely important rebel in that, in in sort of consolidating support against Theresa May's Brexit deal, for example. Do you feel, after almost two years of this Boris Johnson government, or more than two years, I should say, rather, that he is a better Prime Minister than Theresa May? Well, so... (laughs) 
Well, Judge, what does better mean? So uh, if you mean a better in the sense that he won an 80-seat majority, uh, better in the sense that we did leave the European Union with a tolerable path to a great future, as I said when I backed the deal, then yes, that, that is all better. But if you were to judge him on his compliance with tedious detail, then Theresa May is definitely more of a champion on, on that score. But, you know, we've got a problem as we've left the EU. Two, two big things have happened, which have been a real big problem for Boris. Covid interrupted everything. And just like Brexit, Covid has consumed all of government. And again, civil service has only got so much capacity, as I discovered as a minister, and I knew anyway, but as I really experienced as a minister. And the other big problem is, until the Northern Ireland Protocol is sorted out, we, it's very difficult for us to do our own thing. Because if, if GB starts doing different things, we will just illustrate that we really have left Northern Ireland behind. So the protocol's got to be sorted, and that's why I said the deal was a tolerable path to a great future. Let's take the first things of those two issues first, and then we'll talk about Brexit afterwards. Sure. So the coronavirus lockdowns now... I did meticulous research to find out what you've said on this over the last two years, and I'm absolutely surprised uh, how uh, consistent you really have been, to be fair to you, on this issue. The initial lockdown, you did support that. I think you were very, very reluctant to do so. I don't think I voted for it, though, did I? You cry. I remember you crying and saying, "I don't like crying." Let's not get carried away. <laughs> when, when, whenever anybody says, when everybody says crying, it just starts a ridiculous story. I did not stand there crying. I was definitely emotional um, because I feel very passionate about so liberty, but crying is a, a, a daft I'm just saying, you, obviously to you it was a very, you took it very seriously. Taking away people's freedoms and locking them down at home is quite serious. Absolutely, yes. and, I, I, and I commend you for, for doing that. I think some Conservative MPs can probably learn a thing or two from that. But anyway, th- th- you definitely supported sort of tweets of yours saying it was the right thing to do at the, at the time. This was in sort of March, May, April time of 2020. Do you regret you know, supporting that initial lockdown, even if you didn't vote for it, I know you did say statements that, that supported it. Um, I would like to go back, as you have, and see the exact words, and I don't know if you've got them there, but... You said lockdown, uh, this is from the top of my mind, lockdown was the right decision to save thousands of, of lives. I Almost yeah. verbatim. Um, yeah, so... With the benefit of hindsight, it looks like the non-pharmaceutical interventions come at way too high a price. But equally, we don't get to be Captain Hindsight, do we? I mean, Keir Starmer gets away with it. But I have suggested four major institutional reforms which would lead to better decision-making in the future. But I think it is worth remembering where we were then. I found myself on a call with the council about mortuary capacity. And they'd already doubled mortuary capacity, and they were doubling it again. And then I found myself on a call saying we need to double it again. Well, how many times are you going to double mortuary capacity? You know, given where we were, it was an extremely frightening place. I mean, I really did think we were going to run out of crematorium. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Capacity. We weren't going to run out of... But the irony was Muslims were worried about being cremated, not buried. And there was the controversy over that, and I was involved in it. But actually, the problem was the reverse one, that we might have ended up with Hindus buried who wished to be cremated. But, you know, we're talking about having so many bodies, you haven't got enough morgue capacity. And so in that context, having to make statements at the time back then on incomplete, a bit like when we go to war, you know, the prime minister knows stuff we don't. I don't think I'm in a position to say that with the benefit of hindsight, I regret what I said then, not least because, you have, I mean, much as you've, you, you know. I will find that what you said and we but, can, yeah, but I'm not really interested, to be honest. We've all been through this and I've been, not only did I found the COVID recovery group, I have been the most strident defender of freedom through all this and I'm happy to defend my record but honestly archaeology about whether I've given the benefit now I'm just not really interested wasting my time. I suppose the reason I ask is because as you say quite rightly we need to prepare for other future pandemics or even future variants. Yeah but we're not going to do that by looking at my tweets and having an argument about whether I was right at the time. The way to do it is four things We need a new Public Health Act, which Lord Sumption has sketched for me very kindly, which brings the Civil Contingencies Act level of scrutiny to the Public Health Act lockdowns. Secondly, we need to change the structure of expert advice, because experts fail too. Uh, Professor Roger Koppel, who wrote a book called Expert Failure, has helped me with that. I've published a one-page summary. I've given a few more details to government. We need to change the way we do cost-benefit analysis to use quality-adjusted life years. Professor Paul Dolan of the LSE, who works with Gus O'Donnell, has given me papers on that, which I've passed on, together with, by the way, checklists, which just very simply allow you to check that you have actually considered more than just the damage of the disease with tunnel vision, and also the modelling, which we'll be debating later in Parliament. The modelling's a bloody disaster, and we've really got to get modelling sorted out with an Office of Research Integrity. So those four things are the reforms we need. Were we to have those reforms, then in future we would do better. One of the most extraordinary things about this, this Downing Street story this week is it's shown to people how absurd the rules really were in many ways. And you wrote in The Telegraph on the 3rd of May 2020, we have risked offences of sitting too long on a park bench, purchasing luxury food and sweating inadequately while cycling. People have been accused of not exercising when practising yoga and walking. Families have been driven off their outdoor property against the law. This is absurd, dystopian and tyrannical. Yeah. Do you feel you've been vindicated? Yeah. Because at the time, they knew that the virus didn't really spread outside. So going outside was a fantastic thing to do, but we still had these very odd rules where you couldn't sit on a park bench and all these other things. We're going to have to have a really proper inquiry into this stuff, but that's a really difficult choice because even the inquiry is capable of being biased. I mean, the sort of questions I've been asked, I was interviewed... I was interviewed by a Channel 4 documentary who wanted to get me on the hook over opposing a circuit breaker lockdown. And Jeremy Farrer had made the case for it and made, was making the opposite case. And they cu- actually cut out of an interview. So Boris had rung me. The night he was bounced into the second lockdown, he rang me and said he had been shown this chart of 4,500 deaths a day with the hospitals overwhelmed. What should I do? And I said two things. First, if you really believe you're going to have 4,500 deaths a day with the hospitals overwhelmed, you've got to do whatever is necessary to stop that. But second, for goodness sake, challenge the data. And that's why the second day saw me going up Downing Street with a team of scientists because he let me get in and challenge it. And by Monday, we'd taken the, Carl Hennigan had taken the wheel off the death projections. So I'm proud of that work. But of course, by then, Boris had been bounced into a lockdown. But the point is that in Wales, a circuit breaker lockdown can be seen to have been futile. And yet people still ask for it. Why? 
because of this Paul Dolan problem that he rec- that he's the, the problem Paul Dolan's raised. You get tunnel vision. Officials are only responsible for their bit, the disease, and so that's why I'm suggesting that we, what we need is to break that tunnel vision and compel the system to engage with all the other collateral harms. The other reason I'm asking about this initial lockdown, and I think it is important to to challenge MPs on who supported it. You didn't. You did in some tweets, but you didn't in Parliament. Other MPs were much more supportive. But let's, that's, that, that's not relevant. Why, remember, why? remember so forgive, forgive me for interrupting yes, you. Yeah. If I was elected as a libertarian MP on a PR system for the whole nation, then I could take libertarian positions. But I am the Conservative MP for Wickham, and the, the vast majority of my constituents would probably throughout this have wanted me to be on the side of lockdowns and restrictions. Absolutely, and, and my job as a journalist is to challenge politicians Do. like you on this issue. So the reason I'm asking is because lockdowns, the initial lockdown, had some of the worst effects that you pointed out fantastically over the last two years on individuals' lives. I mean, it has absolutely devastated people's lives. Those, those restrictions, I cannot you know, begin to express even on my family what, you know, what happened. So it's important to go back and look at these things and say, why were these decisions made? Who made them? Was there enough scrutiny? And I think, as you say, we need an inquiry, but we need to look at it now and say there obviously wasn't enough scrutiny. There wasn't enough thinking about the impact of these lockdown restrictions. So absolutely right. And Stephen, I've written about this, including in your own newspaper, which I'm extremely grateful I've gone out to experts in the field who, I mean, Paul Dolan, I don't think, would, wouldn't mind me saying he doesn't traditionally come at politics from a conservative perspective, whereas Roger Copple's a straight-up classical liberal. I've gone out to experts in the field and got the best possible research into what our policy should be. I've proposed those reforms, you know, assumption of what the Public Health Act should be. And, you know, I've done my duty. I've thought through as best I could with the CRG MPs what reforms we needed to do better next time. I've gone to experts. I've proposed the policies. And number 10, I presented these policies, of course, to relevant ministers and to relevant SPADs in number 10, and they weren't interested in adopting them. And and I, I said at the time in number 10... When they said this is this all these four reforms, therefore the judge-led inquiry, I said, well, what about the winter? Because we'll probably have another wave. Oh, now it's for the judge-led inquiry. They had time when I presented this stuff to have implemented these things and have made better decisions this winter. But in the end, what happened this winter? This winter we made the right decision. The prime minister made the right decision because I, frankly, procured a hundred and one-person rebellion, plus a couple of other rebellions a bit smaller. And that changed the political dynamic, along with a number of other factors. I'm absolutely not claiming sole credit, and of course Mark is the chairman. But Mark and I have worked extremely hard to, to force the Prime Minister to engage with the reality that you can't just go with what the epidemiologists say based on fearful models. So, you know, it's not desirable. Things should have been done the way I proposed months ago. Let's talk about Conservative government, Conservative values, taxing, spending, all those issues I said we were going to speak about. Yeah. To many of your voters, and you know, this is a time where Conservatives are not doing very well in the polls. This is, sort of, I think, the worst since 2013, Labour's lead. To many voters, they feel that this isn't a Conservative government in principle. Go to North Shropshire, as I did, speak to the constituents there. They were not happy with many of the things, not just lockdowns, but other things that Conservative government doing. For example, increasing national insurance tax rises, the obsession with net zero, mm-hmm. the immigration crisis, all these things. What's your view? Do you think this is a Conservative government in principle? No. I mean, well, it's a technocratic government. It's a technocratic centrist government. In a sense, Boris is what he promised us. He said he'd be a Brexit Heza. And and that's what he's giving us. I've, I've never regarded Boris as a libertarian. I've always regarded him as having a wild and uncontrollable spirit. 
and being a power politician. And that's where he is. You know, the Conservative Party's a family. It's got Tories in it, and it's got classical liberals like me in it. And I've always regarded Boris as being on the Tory wing of the party, quite happy to use power, quite happy to spend a lot of money. And I think what's gone on here is that he and Dominic Cummings had worked out a plan to leave the EU and then reset the country with enormous spending on levelling up and actually a very big injection of money into to science. And actually, in many ways, you could see the logic. It's very Keynesian to do that such a huge bump rhyme. But you could at least see the logic of it. The problem then now is we have actually spent money and more because, of course, QE covered the borrowing to get us through the pandemic. So I think his whole strategy is in terrible trouble in particular on the national insurance rise, the idea that we can deal with what will be in our lifetimes, I believe, catastrophic levels of public debt due to age-related spending commitments, the idea you can cover that by going back to young people with a national insurance rise, it's absolutely absurd. You've only got to look at the OBR's fiscal sustainability report with its debt projections soaring away to hundreds of percent basically in our lifetimes to know that we're going to have a disaster we're going to be unable to f pay for pensions and healthcare and everything else unless we do something quite dramatic to get those runaway debt figures something like stable. And of course the political cycle doesn't really lend itself to it. But if I may say so, you guys were very good to me. I stood up in the House of Commons and said we needed to rediscover our values as Conservatives and you ran it, I think, on the, on the inside pages but as a big headline right across a double spread and I was very grateful. You know, I'm founding Conservative Way Forward to try and have this conversation. Do you think that we are in a similar situation as those post-war Conservative governments were in, where, as you say, they were completely Keynesian, they didn't believe that increasing the money supply would increase inflation, for example, which is a huge issue at the moment. Are we in that same situation where we perhaps are heading to a similar 1970s-style economic disaster, if we continue like this? Um, I personally think it could be worse than the 70s. And the reason that I think that is that for 50 years, you know, I'm 50 years of age, since you know, my whole life, we've had this post-Bretton Woods monetary system of floating fiat currencies. And we now all take it totally for granted. But in the 20th century, depending how you count them, there might have been eight different currency systems. And currency institutional systems do change. I mean, we've still got the IMF and the World Bank, even though they're defunct institutions. Well, they're not defunct. They're obsolescent institutions of the Bretton Woods system, but somehow they've gone on. But currency systems do change. We've got Bitcoin and, uh, emerging and other cryptocurrencies as a kind of response to currency debasement. And what I believe is happening in the world at the moment, if I can put it as simply as possible, for 50 years since the end of Bretton Woods, we've been ultimately funding deficit spending through credit expansion and more recently QE. It was Alan Greenspan who... Uh, explained the Alan Greenspan, who explained this phenomenon in an essay called Golden Economic Freedom. He, he did that in the 60s. He's never resiled from it. And that's what's happening. You know, if, if governments always fund their spending by tax borrowing and currency debasement, in the past they used to clip coins, and I think I've got one in my pocket, because I usually try to have one in my pocket for this very purpose. People ask me, why do I carry an ounce of silver? It's because I can't afford to lose an ounce of gold. But back in the days when this was money, people would, rulers would clip the coins and put tin in them, and that was the debasement. Yeah. But these days, uh, what they do is credit expansion. And, you know, people forget the vast majority of our money, or they don't know, that is created by banks lending. That's where the money comes from, apart from cash. And the bank reserves through QE. And then we go over to QE. But this is what's happened. We've had a chronically expansionary monetary environment um, for most of the last 50 years. If you look at 97 to 2010, the UK money supply, M4, went from about 700 billion 
to 2.2 trillion. And this great accelerating rush to destruction. Hayek talks about it in his Nobel lecture. And then since that global financial crisis about 2010, the money supply has been more stagnant. This then raises all sorts of questions about the structure of our society, the prices of assets, and whether the prices of things in our economic system, whether the structure of production, if you like, has prices within it which reflect the true preferences of consumers and the availability of resources. Now, if you're, as I am, Austrian school, a Hayekian, a Miesian in your analysis of the structure of capital and prices, then the answer is going to be no. Because this much QE and this much credit expansion for that long will have dramatically distorted prices away from the levels they ought to have had in line with preferences and resources. And there's only one outcome to that. There's two outcomes to that, according to Mises. Either you keep on creating new money until you get a hyperinflationary collapse, or you stop creating new money and the damage that you have sown over a very long time becomes visible in a huge economic crisis. Now, since politicians can't bear that crisis, they will always keep creating money. So I'm sorry to give you a long answer. The reason I think it'd be worse than the 70s, and I've put this on the record at Treasury Committee before I came off it. Here we are now with inflation coming up, as I sort of said it would, 5%, you know. 5 6%. Yeah. And, and I said, it, you know, all we need is inflation to be at high single digits. We don't need hyperinflation. But if we end up with inflation 5 6 7%, the Bank of England will have to act under its legal mandate. That's when the crunch moment comes. Because the Bank of England put on the record in answer to me that it's not their job to make the bond market auctions work. So what will Boris Johnson do, a man who wants to spend a lot of money? When the moment comes and the Bank of England have got to chop QE and raise interest rates quite a lot to try and control inflation under their mandate, do we think that Boris is going to, A, dramatically cut spending, or B, change the mandate of the Bank of England. I believe that in those circumstances, vastly more likely to change the mandate of the Bank of England. It seems to me they put up both Sajid Javid and Jim O'Neill to go out into the public before Jim came to the Treasury Committee to talk about nominal GDP targeting. Now, if they change to nominal GDP targeting and they put my friend George Selgin in charge, who's the world's greatest advocate of it, I think we'd probably get a a satisfactory system we could work with. The trouble is they won't put George in charge what they'll do is they'll use nominal GDP targeting in order to facilitate more QE into an accelerating environment of inflation. And when that happens, we'll have a mass shift of expectations and then prices will be off to the races. And that's what I'm expecting to happen, to be absolutely clear. So this is really not a good situation that you're describing. It's a disaster. A complete yeah. disaster. And I expect as, it as, to happen everywhere. As you see. And I'm going to ask a question about it. I have to apologise to viewers who aren't economic students. I studied A-level economics. I'm glad I could just about follow what you're Sorry. saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was absolutely fantastic and eloquent. And I'm glad that you know, some MPs have sort of an idea of what's going on here. As a practical man, as a practical politician, yeah. what should you, we do about this? I mean, you, you seem to be a sort of canary in the coal mine saying we are heading to a serious, serious disaster. If people don't remember the 1970s, I don't remember it. Absolute catastrophe then. And you're saying it's going to be even worse now. That's my expectation. What I've lived can with we it for do? 10 years. What are you going to do? How are we going to sort this out? Well, the first thing, what we have to do is basically make conservatism and classical liberalism attractive. That's why I keep taking these sorts of views. And this is why I'm so strident on the other subjects you've said, that we need to make it attractive. You and I, I hope, both know that this is not going, when the crisis comes, it won't be a crisis caused by the state being too small and intervening too little in our lives. It won't be caused by taxes being too low. It won't be caused by too many surpluses. It won't be caused by money being too tight and interest rates too high. Because to reflect on all those things is to answer the question right. Government's been huge. 
Governments spent vast amounts of money, often beyond the limits of taxation. Taxations are at historic high, and we've had just the most extraordinary easy money environment. So when the crisis comes, it will be a crisis of big government and easy money and high taxes. Okay, I'm not the greatest historian, but I would put it to the public, think Weimar and elsewhere, you know, people, when things are terrible, have to choose. And unfortunately, they will get a choice, I think, between either easy, lazy promises of socialism or they have to go the way which will be hard, but which history has shown has worked, which is the free market conservative way. And that is going to require a new calibre of politician and indeed of intellectual and indeed of journalist to understand what has happened and take a longer view and think, how are we going to save our civilization? I genuinely believe that if the monetary system collapses in the Eurozone, the UK, uh, probably the US, certainly the USA, and, and also China at the same time, then what will happen is people like Jeremy Corbyn, who you saw was quite popular, will say this is the inevitable coming of socialism. This is what Marx predicted. This is the material forces of production and the inevitable Hegelian dialectic. Bliss is about to come with socialism, but they can never tell you what socialism is. It's just whatever comes after capitalism. And, and, and in that moment, we better make sure people choose freedom. In the more immediate term, 2022, people are really feeling a squeeze on their pockets. You've got, as I mentioned earlier, national insurance coming up, huge rise in inflation, particularly energy inflation, energy prices are soaring, and I think a quarter of energy bills are even from green subsidies and green tax as well, so there's a huge part of this is from the government, this net zero push. What should we do about this, this cost of living crisis, and do you think it is partly created by the government's uh, policies? Oh, it's absolutely created by government, yes. But this is a very, very present and real and human thing in Wickham. I mean, the food bank, which was run until recently by people from my church, incidentally, the, the, the chief exec and the chairman were both at my church for a time. The chairman's just changed over. But One Can Trust in, in Wickham does an amazing, amazing job, but it's become quite an industrial scale operation, and that is shaming, honestly. And it's not just shaming on this government, it's shaming on the welfare state. Look at the amount of money the welfare state spends, and yet people in South Buckinghamshire have to go to the food bank. It is a shaming crisis of state welfare. And we're not good at pointing that out because we get all shy about it. Because we, But no, we, we spend this enormous amount of money. There should be no poverty. But Reagan pointed this out in his Time for Choosing speech. about the, He just took the amount of welfare spending and divided it by the number of people in poverty and said there should be no poverty. It's absurd that we're managing to spend this much money and still have people at food banks and in houses with damp and can't afford to buy a house when they're a young person and needs to bring up a family. A terrible failure of the state. But it is a failure of the state. Since 1911 and the National Insurance Act, we've just been ramping up this belief in the omnipotence of government, of state power, of coercion. And it isn't working. People will try and argue otherwise, but they're just wrong and we'll have to defeat them. But, you know, is it the government's fault? I'm very clear in my own mind that for the vast majority of people, the single biggest expense in their life is government. It's not their mortgage, it's not their energy bill, it's not the cost of the credit on their car. It's government. It's the amount of tax they pay. Think about going to the fuel pumps. You'll know as somebody from the Taxpayers Alliance. When we go to fill our car, we're not really paying, the majority of what we pay is the tax, not the petrol. 
and, and yet we get used to this stuff. And one of my great fears is it's going to be like that with electricity soon and, and gas is going to be ruled out. But we'll end up that our electricity is mostly subsidy going to wind farms. Uh, you know, it, that's how it feels like we're going. I've, some fact checkers will be all over that. But at the moment, we're putting over 10 billion a year into subsidies for renewables. And, you know, we've got to start thinking really seriously here what, what we're trying to do. And we have to remember that, just as you were talking about it with, with race, we have to remember that on the green stuff, some of our opponents are hard-left eco-anarchists. And again, they're deluding themselves that somehow we can just destroy. It comes from critical theory, the idea we can just tear down and destroy and somehow the solution afterwards will be better. It won't. It'll be that we've torn everything down and destroyed it. But again, if you tell young people in particular the world's going to end and you're not going to be able to bring up children because the earth will be on fire, well, it's not surprising, firstly, that they're not having fewer children. But they will start choosing these radical lunatic ideas because they're frightened. And so, again, we just need to calm everything down and say, for all I've said strident stuff about the monetary system, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm not actually despairing because Bitcoin's coming. I've got a small investment in something that's remonetizing gold called Glint. Technology and entrepreneurship and innovation and science and markets will solve all the problems we face but the problem is government gets in the way. Let's talk about Brexit to finish off the interview. This is the second point that you raised earlier. Mm-hmm. So we need to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol. Liz Truss is currently negotiating that with the European Union. Do you trust that she will be firm enough? Do you trust that she will be tough enough on the European Union? Trust that she will, in fact, trigger Article 16 if she needs to? Are you worried about her firmness? I'm always worried about ministers. I'm a libertarian, classical liberal to libertarian, you know. Trust, I, don't, I despise power. And that's why I get quite happy on the back bench as much as I enjoy being a minister. So I never trust, I never just trust ministers. But I do rely on them. And Liz Truss is subject to a range of incentives that she will have to do the right thing. Because if she doesn't do the right thing, it will be a problem for her. And so three things she needs to do. Number one, try and get a negotiated solution with a lot of things, which are, again, tedious detail, but a lot of stuff that could do that would mean that Northern Ireland was clearly still part of the UK market. Secondly, she can't get those things by negotiation. Use the treaty provisions. People have talked about triggering the article. (gasps) But it's not a nuclear provision. It's limited stuff necessary to deal with real problems. And it's legal as well. it, it, It is legal, yeah, absolutely. So doing legal specific things to solve real problems is provided for in the treaty and it is probably a big deal to do it because it's unilateral and we should give due notice in advance that we're going to do it but we shouldn't be ashamed to do it to keep the UK together we should just do it and the third place we should go so negotiation is preferable second uh, using the article and third if necessary we should say to them do you know what in the end this is about politics In the end, we were under duress when we agreed that protocol. The political duress in the UK was absolutely extraordinary at the time. We tested our constitution nearly to destruction. And in the end, we're going to repudiate. You're not negotiating in good faith, and we were under duress when we agreed it. And therefore, under international law, we are entitled to take the political step of repudiation. Now, people, when I've said that to them, oh, we don't want to do that because we get a trade war and it would harm the poor. I'm absolutely alive to that. I've already said what I've said about food banks. But what have we just been through the last few years? People like me took a great and terrible risk with the future of our nation by resisting Theresa May's deal to the uttermost. And which Boris didn't, by the way, he voted for it. But because some of us didn't and resisted it to the uttermost, we went into a general election having taken that risk on principle to get democratic control of political power back. 
And though many of your viewers won't like what we did, the result is an 80-seat majority, which has then been squandered. So people, I hope, will forgive me if I say that on this issue, we should do what we know to be right. And the EU will have to be told, and God bless them, I wish them every success and happiness and joy and their own flourishing, but they have to understand that our Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary and our MPs have a fierce resolve that we're going to keep the UK together and that they may not treat Northern Ireland as an enclave within the EU. It is not on and we're not going to tolerate it, what come what may. Are you concerned, in particular with the EU's actions, that they are now becoming a hostile power to us? Well, which bit of the EU and who? Because there's a huge. Well, if you look at France, issue. for example, I mean. The well, France. You know, there's too many jokes about France, and I've met the French ambassador, who's absolutely charming, and don't wish to be rude about France. But you know, there's plenty of English jokes about France. You know, we've got a long and historic rivalry, and they've got their own elections too. But what I would do really is appeal to everybody just be sensible and act in our mutual interests rather than trying to escalate things. I don't want conflict or of any kind with anybody. I, I think we have to respect that they've got their worries about their market but I have to say one of the most difficult issues is sausage rolls on the border because the SPS measures for cooked meats are tricky but we absolutely cannot allow ourselves to surrender Northern Ireland in breach of the Northern Ireland protocol which applies east-west which our American Democrat friends sometimes forget it applies east-west as well as north-south we cannot surrender democratic control of political power in Northern Ireland and everything that was striven for in the Belfast agreement because we're worried about sausage rolls on the Northern Ireland border it's too absurd we've got to do sensible things which respect their concerns about their market but which also respect the integrity of our country because we are in a place where EU ambassadors have told me directly of course we respect the territorial integrity of the UK, but then they make it difficult to negotiate on the protocol, and that, that I'm afraid to me, without wishing to cast dispersions on any particular ambassador, because they're always lovely, I get on very well with them, but that is bad faith. If they're serious about the territorial integrity of the UK, then they'll just get down to the nuts and bolts and we'll reach a negotiated solution, and the whole of the UK will do what it wishes. Thank you, Steve Baker, for that extremely refreshing and candid interview. You're very welcome. I'm delighted to have the opportunity. And thanks very much. And thank you to those people who've watched it to the end. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.